Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's been fascinating to listen to the contributions people have made. And it was lovely of Paul to encourage that to happen because that's the expectation. Um, that when we come together, it's not to receive only, but it's to give to God. And it is to give those things that God's been giving us. So it's always lovely to hear what things are going around in people's minds. Sometimes you can see a distinct thread coming through things. Other times you can't. But it's always good to hear about what God is doing in each other's lives, isn't it? And we hear them through our own grid, of course, with the life we live. We live in an individualistic society, so we tend to hear these comments in that kind of way, very personally. And reading the Word of God reminds us that we are a corporate group, a gathered group. We're meant to see these things together. They do actually slightly affect how we interpret them. And someone said that uh, to his long-time friends at Philippi, I'm quoting here, Paul bears his soul more than anywhere else in his letters. Here you get a good look at what makes Paul tick. Christ crucified and risen from the dead, whose story is recounted in the part that we saw last time I was here. That's the thing that really got Paul buzzing. Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That was his heart. That was what made him tick. So we're reading the bit that connects on to that because we start with a therefore and that connects us to the part he was talking about Jesus, so therefore, verse 12, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. When you see this letter against the backcloth of Paul in prison, suffering and probably looking down the tunnel towards his death, his martyrdom, that's what he's clearly fearing now, notwithstanding what he said in chapter 1 about when it could go either way, he's clearly looking at martyrdom, feels that's what's coming. It seems almost perverse that he's so full of joy because that doesn't sound very joyful to us except when you know what makes Paul tick. His concern is only that Christ crucified and risen from the dead should be known by everyone. And as long as that is being proclaimed, he really doesn't care what happens to him. So it's a genuine thing. He's not being masochistic. He's not one of those folk who go around with a grim look on their face saying, I'm rejoicing in the Lord always. Perversely. It's because of what makes him tick, because somehow he's caught what it's all about. And Liz reminded us what it's all about. In the beginning, God. The human story starts, in the beginning, man. Isn't that right? That's the definition of sin. In the beginning, and we see things as down to me. So we're in danger of hearing the blessing of God 
the Lord bless you and keep us, a kind of thing that comes separate from God, that comes to me separate from God, and I can live separate from God. But that's not how it's intended. When God says he delights to do good things to us, it's not that he says, there you are, have some more of that and enjoy it on your own, bye and I'll see you next week. That's not how it works. This is in order that we might know what it is to be truly human. And we use the word eternal life frequently, don't we? Jesus came to give us eternal life. Another way of interpreting that phrase would be to say the life of the world to come. The life of the world to come. So Jesus came to give us the life of the world to come, which we shall experience for the rest of our lives in the new heaven and new earth. And Jesus defined that life like this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what makes you tick? Everything fixed and working? Or the fact that you know God more than any other thing? We'll come to that in chapter 3 in some week's time. But that's what really drove Paul to know Christ and his suffering. So he doesn't really care what happens to him. He really doesn't care. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I really don't mind so long as Christ is glorified. And as he encourages and exhorts the Philippians to consider their behaviour, he wants them to consider it in the light of Christ's example, not so he can impose upon them, nor I upon you, some more obligation, some more law that you could do without because you're struggling already. That's not the purpose. The purpose is that Christ be glorified and that this very needy world could know him. We're going to focus our thoughts around verses 15 and 16 so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. We live in an area where the stargazers came and pitched their camp along the road so they could see the stars. If you were preaching this in central London, everyone were going, yeah, right, irrelevant stuff, because they can't see the stars, can they? But we can, partly. So that's what we're focusing. The point is the world is in trouble. Biblically, the world is in darkness. And that's why Paul uses his brilliant image of shining like stars in the universe. And you and I have got cricknecks, haven't we, looking out sometimes, seeing the stars. They seem to be hanging down, don't they, in the darkness as brilliant lights. Or it could be the 853 coming in from Spain to Gatwick, flashing its light. It takes you a little while to work out whether it's a star or whether it's a aircraft coming in, isn't it? But we'll go for the stars. When Paul writes to the Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, he's not making a comment about the spiritual state of the world, he's making a comment about the spiritual state of the world. So Paul, John opens his gospel with majestic words, doesn't he? In him, he says about Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. Either one would work. 
And this has been true ever since men and women have turned their back on their creator. Ecclesiastes, the wise have eyes in their heads, but the fool walks in darkness. Biblically, a wise man is someone who honors God, and a foolish man is someone who ignores God. Nothing to do with your intellect. The world of anyone who denies God is utter darkness. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing, says the Psalms. They walk about in darkness. That's the state of the world you and I live in, notwithstanding the brilliant sunshine today. But the reality is, your friends and mine, your neighbours and mine, your family and mine are walking in darkness. But centuries before Jesus came, Isaiah wrote, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Jesus came to bring light. Indeed, he was the light. The thing about being in the dark is you can get used to it. Have you had a power cut recently? We have, uh, over our way, because I think some agricultural contractor knocked out a power line. So when I phoned up the power energy company, he said, oh yeah, that's what's happened, and it took him about, well... I think about 12 hours to put it all back on again. Um, but it wasn't John. It wasn't John. <laughs> um, put him back. But the thing is, you can get used to sitting in darkness, can't you? To such a point that when the lights come back on again, you're startled by the light. Lynn and I used to live in, in Somerset, and we went to Wookiee Hole Caves. Have you ever been there? Well, the, uh, the student who was earning some pin money during his holidays doing the tours in the caves said, I'm going to turn the light off. It'll only be for a few seconds, but I'm going to warn you, I'm going to turn the light off. I've never been in darkness that you can actually feel before. Utter darkness. I was in a crowd of about 20 people. Lynn was standing this close to me, and I could not see her. The darkness was absolutely complete and completely isolating. And then he flicked the switch back on again after seconds, but it felt like a much longer time. Because darkness limits your horizon. And you get a distorted view of the world simply because of those limitations. And Paul uses here words like crooked and depraved. So Peter on the day of Pentecost describes that generation as a corrupt generation. Save yourselves, he says, from this corrupt generation. Jesus used the word when healing the boy of epilepsy. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. There's scarcely any point in me standing here listing the ways in which our generation is crooked, perverse and living in darkness. You see too much of that on your own television screens or in your newspapers. It's no accident that the ninth of the ten plagues, the one that comes before the plague that will actually result in their liberation, is the plague of darkness. Egypt, spiritually speaking, was in utter darkness. For the three hours preceding Jesus' death on the cross, there was utter darkness in the middle of the day. The light of the world was about to be extinguished. What the world needs, my friends, more than anything else, is light. And life. But being in darkness, they don't know it. It's only when you see the light. So you and I are lights to the world.
So what Paul's getting on here is not about saying you've got to do hard, go harder, try harder to do better. These are more obligations you've got to fulfill. But he wants the light of the world to be proclaimed in the society of the Philippians so they may see Jesus and enter into life, which is life indeed, to become real human beings for the first time in their lives. It's not about something separate from that. So Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, in him was life, and that light was that life was the light of men. The true life that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John the Baptist was... Uh, forerunner of Jesus, and we're told specifically that he was not the light. The light who was coming was Jesus. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. However, Jesus himself specifically told us that we are the light of the world. He is the light of the world, but we are to bring light to the world. This is what he said, you are, speaking to his disciples, who would pass this message on to every other disciple, ad infinitum, right down to us, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The intention is to draw attention to God. To bear light to God. And if we are to help, we must walk in the light. We can't bring light unless we have light to bring. We must not walk in darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, writes John, we lie and don't live by the truth. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. John says it's possible for believers to walk in darkness. And since the fear at sphere of our witness is to be in the world, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and gin depraved generation in which you shine like stars of the universe. We have no right, permission, obligation to withdraw. If we withdrew from the world, where is the light? We must live out our witness in the world. So what does it mean to let our light shine before men? Well, here's an image. If Jesus is the light, he is the, like the sun in the sky, which has light in itself. He's the only one who has light in itself. You and I don't have light in ourselves. If we don't walk in step with him, if we don't abide in Christ, drawing our life from him, taking another image, then we have nothing to give to others. So what Paul is encouraging people to do here is to draw their light and their life from Jesus in order that they may give that light and give that life to others. If he's the sun, we would be the moon. Which doesn't have light in itself, but merely reflects the light 
of the sun. And on a lovely, full, moonlit night, that's a lot of light into the world. There's nothing nicer, actually, than going for a moonlight walk somewhere because it's a different kind of light, but it is light. The moon has no light for itself. The problem is, if there's anything between the sun and the moon preventing it from receiving the light of the sun, then you have a moon eclipse or a lunar eclipse. And the only thing that can get between the two is the world, physically. And that's true spiritually. If the world gets between us and Jesus, then our light is extinguished and we have nothing to give. So when Paul says, follow the ways of the Master, he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, this sounds like him saying, get on with it again. Remember what he's trying to do? He's trying to help them see that they must draw their light from Jesus, the one he's just been speaking about, their example, in order that they may have light, that the light might shine in people's lives and they may see Jesus. This is the intention, all right? It's not just about making us look good or making us, if I can say this carefully so you don't misunderstand me, happy, but in order that we might live the kind of lives that bear witness to Jesus. And other people say, oh, so this is what life is all about. Oh, now I know. Can I have some, please? That's the intention. So as Jesus obeyed his Father in everything, so we must obey our Father in everything. Let him be the focus and attention of everything we do. If it's not for him, it's really not worth doing. Not long term. Brother Lawrence discovered, and he wasn't very good at everything, but he discovered that you could do anything to the glory of God. And that somehow transforms everything. We are to work out the implications of this obedience together. He goes on to say, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like you and I have got to work out what God's worked in. Well, that's true biblically, but that's not what he's saying here. Because he's talking to them together. He says, you've got to work this out together. What are the implications of the obedience together? And there was a lovely, there is a lovely sense of togetherness here this morning, isn't it? It really is. It's delightful. This is what God wants. It's not about you getting it all right and me struggling and you getting it all right, but us working it out together. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling together. Helping one another together. So affirmation goes a long way. Forgiveness goes a long way. Encouragement goes a long way. You know what works, don't you? And you know what don't work. We've already had that earlier in chapter 2. So we're to work out the implications of this obedience together, but we will only succeed when we utterly depend upon God. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So while we have to do it together, we have to say, I want to do it, yet it, without God's help we won't do it. And here's the way, look, it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Are you ever in the point where you wish you wanted to do the will of God, but you frankly don't? If you're honest, I know what I should do. I know what I should want to do, 
but actually at this precise moment don't actually want to do it. Yeah, I do. Do you find yourself in that sort of dilemma? That sounds very convoluted. Well, here you can ask, you can pray a prayer that says, Lord, I want to want what you, I want to want what you want me to do. You can go back one stage because it's God who works in you to will and to act. This is what I'd really want, Lord. And God can give us the ability to desire his will, to give us a thirst for what he wants. But it's our choice to desire it. But God will give us that thirstiness if we want it. Then we are to ruthlessly exclude everything that doesn't build up the body. Do everything, he says in verse 14, without complaining or arguing. This is practical stuff. And what's the purpose? To make them feel awkward or embarrassed? Or to tell them off? No. Because these things frustrate. If someone were to walk in this morning, someone who knows all about the difficulties of life, and found us arguing, complaining, instead of people saying, can I come up here because I've got something I just want to share that I will encourage people, instead of people saying, I'd just like to say something that's really, you know, and then lambast someone else here, and they'd walk in, stay here for about 15 seconds, and walk out again, wouldn't they? It would do nothing for the purposes of God, would it? So Paul says, don't do anything with complaining or arguing. Work out your salvation together. Who's operating here this morning? Don't think only of yourself, think of others. And only as we exhibit the character of Jesus in our relationships, because you can't do it on your own in your relationships, will the message we have and the light we bear have credibility. And he told, tells us to hold on to and hold out the world of life. As you, verse 16, as you hold out or hold on to the word of life, living as God's people. We are to embrace God's word of life for ourselves, and we are to express God's word of life to others. And here's the thing, here's the thing, in our deeply perverse natures, which God is changing, we still try and evaluate God's word from first beginnings. We haven't yet caught on that if God made the world and everything in it, and if God made me even hidden in my mother's womb, and every day before anyone came to be, then doesn't he know best how, God, how the world works, how life works? Well, in my mind, I think I say yes to that, but I still discuss these things when he tells me to do something. Yet everything he tells me must be the best wisdom you could possibly have, shouldn't it? if he is who he is. So when I read his word, instead of trying to find ways to wriggle out of it, or way, find a way of where it won't apply, I should be embracing it and saying, this is words of life. This is the best wisdom I could possibly have. Read Psalm 19, or if you've got time, 119, both of which celebrate the word of God with powerful emotion. He talks about it as being life and food and light in all sorts of positive ways. So I should embrace the word. Help me this week, Lord, not to wriggle out of it, but to embrace it as being the wisest possible thing as we hold out this word of life. Only as we glow with the glory of God inside will our lives shine in this dark world. The world is in darkness and we can bring light. Where you're going this week, 
these days this week, where people are, the world is dark, but you're going to bring light. As you glow with the life of Christ, as you abide in him and let his light shine, and then your light shines, then people will see something of the glory of God. And if that's true, Paul says, then I can rejoice even if I'm staring at martyrdom. I can rejoice in the Lord, and I want you to rejoice in me too. I can be glad that whatever happens to me, glory is given to Jesus. My friends, we are the light of the world. We shine like stars in the universe. And the world is in desperate need of the light of God. Let me pray. Father, your Son is the exact representation of your being. All things hold together in him, and he sustains all things by your powerful word. We're about, Father, to remember him in this graphic and helpful way. As we reflect over last week, and look forward to next week. With all our hearts, Father, we want to shine like stars in the universe. We want to be the light of God in a dark world. We want people to see something about us that reflects on you positively. We want our friends, neighbours, even family members to know eternal life which is to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So may your word of life bring life into our lives, that your life may overflow from us as we rest in him. We've heard such wonderful things from your word this morning, Lord, that you made us in the beginning when we had nothing whatever to do with it, that every day of our lives was known to you before any of them came to be. And all this was affirmed by little David sitting here and gurgling at the front. What a wonderful connection that was, Father. You've told us that you rejoice to do us good. You love to do us good. You want us to know goodness in our lives. You want to bless us. You want to turn your face towards us that we might know your blessing. You have spoken such words of comfort, Lord, and encouragement to us this morning. This is not to no avail. We have received it, Lord. Now we ask that you will feed us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.